I was looking around the room and I saw like all of you guys raised your hand that you heard of critical race theory and I was like, wow, I'm the only one who hasn't. That's amazing. <laughs> it's just one of us. Um, thank you all very much for coming to this. By the way, I appreciate you all very much for taking the time. I know some of you traveled a very long way. I know a lot of you had to take some, you know, big effort to get here. So I'm really glad you all came to the unbelievably balmy Tampa, Florida in July. Um, enjoy your heat rash if you can. So I'm gonna be a little bit uncharacteristic through this. I know that many of you have seen me speak or heard me speak before. I don't tend to use notes, but I have notes because I actually wanna to read to you from, as I like to do, read to you from the critical race theory literature. And also, as you'll see, like today, I wanna to go over, for example, the core tenets of critical race theory, and I named 13 of them. And it, I can remember some stuff, but like maybe I could've got nine. So pardon me for using notes. That said, let me give you a quick overview. Critical race theory, I turns out I actually have heard of it. Um, I've read a little bit of it here and there. Critical race theory is a pretty hot topic and I couldn't be happier about that fact because for a while I was screaming into a void or a hurricane or something. And the truth is, until people know what it is and until people speak up about it and can take intelligent, thoughtful action to push back against it, it's going to continue doing all of these kind of terrible things that it continues to do that I don't think any of us are too happy about. So um, I was struck a few months ago, several months ago, reading a book by a Polish psychologist who offered a proverb in that book, this is the basis for his book, and he said, never attempt to cure what you do not understand. And so the purpose of these five lectures is to add as much understanding as possible to your knowledge of critical race theory so that you can attempt to cure this cancer on our society. And I mean that quite seriously, this cancer on our society. So the five sessions, just to kind of give you a quick overview of where we're gonna to go. Tonight we're going to talk about what is critical race theory? How do you define it? What does it believe? Tomorrow, the morning's gonna be a bit rough. We're gonna take probably, the, the, the goal of this whole thing overall is to give the deepest and most candid dive into what critical race theory is, where it comes from, how it thinks, and how it operates that has been given. Hopefully it's going to be a definitive word on critical race theory from the perspective of people for once who don't believe in it. And so tomorrow we're going to, after talking about what it is tonight, so you can go mull that over and have pleasant dreams about it all night long, in the morning, we're going to pick up with first a lecture on its proximate ideological roots. As I've said to many audiences, but I'm sure this audience is one of the few that I don't have to say this to, critical race theory did not spring out of the ground last summer when George Floyd died. It did not just erupt one year in change ago out of nowhere. This has been brewing for a while. Critical race theory got its name in 1989, but critical race theory in 1989 did not just appear out of the ground either. It has ideological roots, philosophical roots, activist roots. And so tomorrow morning, first thing, we're gonna talk about what I call, I'm sorry, I use lots of academic words, the proximate ideological roots of critical race theory. That's actually one of my words from my massage therapy background, proximate, uh, proximal, closer um, to, the, to the body. And so what we're gonna talk about then is postmodernism, neo-Marxism, critical legal studies. We've heard a lot about that in the news now lately as they're trying to deflect around critical race theory. And then, Later in the morning, going into the early afternoon round before lunch, we're going to go into the deep ideological roots of critical race theory. So we're gonna go way back to the middle of the 18th century 
in that discussion and kind of see that in fact, even this postmodern and postmodernism and neo-Marxism that uh, we're gonna talk about earlier is not the whole story. It goes back even further than that. And so hopefully we can kind of retrograde define critical race theory all the way back as kind of a continuous 250 year project that's been in development, uh, which is a big difference from George Floyd died and the world went crazy. Uh, it's a much different story. It changes the fight. Do not try to cure what you don't understand. And then we'll turn to lighter fare and the last two lectures we'll talk about what critical race theory is in terms of what it does, how does it operate, and then what might we be able to do about it where you'll have to bear with me and give me strength because that's where I'm least confident. So we'll see what, we, what I have to say about what we can do about it. I'm supposed to project confidence. <laughs> it's gonna be great, I'm gonna be right, no problem. So that's the overview of what we're gonna do in this little workshop, and again, I appreciate you all coming. The proverb again is do not attempt to cure what you do not understand. And so we're gonna start off our task for the evening with the impossible. For us, we're going to define critical race theory. We've just listened to the media and our political apparatchiks gaslight us for months that nobody who opposes critical race theory knows what it is. Well, I've talked to a lot of people who seem to be for it, they don't seem to know what it is either. So apparently nobody can define critical race theory, except for critical race theorists who have a slightly biased perspective on the matter that I don't believe. So I want to start off by kind of giving you some different characterizations of critical race theory of my own invention, and then we'll try to put legs under those. Uh, another maxim that I'd like to kind of run with through this, at least through the first four of these lectures, is critical race theory. I know this is trite, I'm so sorry, but this is my generation. Critical race theory is as critical race theory does. And that is a absolutely critical thing, no pun intended for sure, to understand if we want to be able to take on critical race theory because they're not teaching critical race theory in schools is a sort of almost technically true statement. They're mostly doing critical race theory in schools, but those two things are not separable. And if you don't understand that about it, you can't understand it. So critical race theory is as critical race theory does. So I'm gonna give some definitions and I'm gonna talk about what critical race theory believes in order to put some legs under those definitions, and as we see as we go through the, the subsequent lectures, we'll understand that that's a pretty good characterization. Um, so the first of the many characterizations that I've given, I think some people in the audience have heard this, is that I've said, <laughs> it's a tortured metaphor, it is the tip of a 100 year long spear meant to gore the side of Western civilization and to open up Western civilization to a Marxian-style liberation movement and revolution. And so the point of me phrasing it that way is that critical race theory, this new shiny thing that we're all dealing with now, this sharp thing ripping our society apart, is only the very, very end of a much longer trajectory, a much longer movement. And the first 100 years, that 100-year-long shaft, if you will, of the spear, is what we're gonna talk about first thing tomorrow. And then that's being driven, like I said, 250 years by another 150 years of muscle behind it, intellectual and ideological muscle. So that's kind of what we're doing. But this is something you have to understand, that the critical race theory is the tip of the spear in order to rip open the values of Western civilization to undermine or tear them apart or subvert or invert the values of Western civilization so that Western civilization, via the vision of cultural Marxists, 
modified to the uh, identity-based context can open up society to a revolution for liberation, which is a word that, of course, goes back all the way through communism. That said, that's a funny definition. I want you to mostly come away, and if you only remember one thing that I have to say about critical race theory, I think this is the key thing to remember, is that critical race theory is a belief system. So my definition for critical race theory is that it is a belief system founded on the belief that the fundamental organizing principle of society is racism created by white people for the benefit of white people. That is what critical race theory is. It is a faith system based on the belief that society is organized by white people for their own benefit through something they call systemic racism. And that's what I want to put legs underneath as we go along. But I've mentioned a lot of other things already. I mentioned neo-Marxism and postmodernism, and Marxism, and I didn't say the H word yet, Hegel, but we will get to Hegel. <laughs> I didn't even mention Hegel yet. He's coming, don't worry. Um, we can't get away from the neo-Marxist aspect. We cannot get away from the neo-Marxist aspect. The thing we're gonna talk about primarily tomorrow is the proximate roots of, of critical race theory is in neo-Marxism, or otherwise known as critical theory, and I will just mix in with that something slightly different, which is cultural Marxism. Um, they're vaguely different in a, in a small way, but it's kind of irrelevant how that is. So the neo-Marxism's actually not Ignorable. If we go back to mention a, a critical theorist or a neo-Marxist, Herbert Marcuse, probably the most prominent and influential of the neo-Marxists, uh, he was probably he was he was the neo-Marxist of the second generation of what's called the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory, um, which was his generation would have been like. The, 19, mid 1950s through the early 1970s. Then it got taken over by Jurgen Habermas and nobody pays any attention to it because the line actually doesn't stay interesting in the Frankfurt School any longer. It goes off with black feminism. Uh, and that was Marcuse's doing. If you read One Dimensional Man from 1964, if you read Repressive Tolerance from 1965, or if you read The Essay on Liberation from 1969, all Marcusean works, you see him say, whether it's using racial minorities, women, feminists, sexual minorities, and the radical outsiders of society cobbled together with a leftist intelligentsia, meaning him, meaning critical theorists, that they were going to build a movement that used the, that radical energy to put into practice his critical theory, which was going to enact repressive tolerance, going to bring about a two-dimensional sensibility that involved critical theory, not just understanding the world, and that was going to allow us to move toward liberation, which is a communist word. So it's just a, a rebranding of communism. That's what liberation is. It's liberation from capitalism. There you go. Liberation from liberal systems. There you go. Well, let's not get distracted into that. It's tomorrow. So the neo-Marxist part can't be ignored. But I will point out that, Mar that Marcuse explicitly said that this is like the energy that he wanted to co-opt for his movement by, by the time he's writing in 1969 exists in the ghetto populations. That was his phrasing for it, the ghetto populations. So the disenfranchised black population, disenfranchised Latino population, those were the people he wanted to activate and turn into the new left, or the vanguard, I should say, of the new left. And critical race theory grew out of that energy. Um, so we could now add that. We could say instead of it just being a belief system, that blah, 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 we can say it's a belief, it's a neo-Marxist belief system that the fundamental organizing principle of society is 
systemic racism created by white people for the benefit of white people, and they maintain it to maintain that advantage. Of course, if we're gonna invoke neo-Marxism, then we can say, well, neo-Marxism is just a repackaging of Marxism, which is true. And we'll understand a lot more of how that goes by the time we get into the H word, Hegel. Once we understand the dialectic, we'll understand that the, what that repackaging looks like. Uh, yeah, the dialectic, I see people shaking their head and raising their fists, yes, the dialectic. The, the operating system of leftism for the last 200 years is the dialectic, my friends. If you don't understand that, you're not gonna cure it. So, um, with Marx, Marx, and we'll talk about this in the third lecture, Marx wanted to create a dictatorship of the proletariat that would usher a transitional or liminal phase called socialism on the way from capitalism to communism. And what I wanna say is that critical race theory endeavors in the proximate goal to create a dictatorship of the anti-racists that is an exact parallel to that. And in that sense, it is a perfect Marxian theory that should not be denied. It's not Marxist. And I go on Mark Lamont Hill's show and he says, you know, we call that vulgar Marxism and we don't do that. Well, the only people who call it vulgar Marxism are neo-Marxists. <laughs> and I say, well, you know a lot about this, don't you? And he thinks he got me. <laughs> and so last of all, just to kind of characterize it, I want to add in to defining critical race theory, because it is critical race theory is as critical race theory does, so we have to talk about what it believes because it acts out of its belief. I'll just say that because it's rooted in neo-Marxism, critical race theory is a conspiracy theory. It is a grand conspiracy theory. Like I said, if my definition is correct, it believes the fundamental organizing principle of society is systemic racism that was created and is maintained by white people in order to maintain their advantage. That's conspiracy theory. It's a weird conspiracy theory because it believes that most of the people who believe in and participate in the conspiracy don't know they are doing it. And that justifies the most Marxian aspect of what they do when we get to lecture number four. What does critical race theory do? Is they aim to raise consciousness of your participation in the giant conspiracy to keep racial minorities down. That's what critical race theory is. It is a neo-Marxian conspiracy theory predicated upon the belief held religiously that racism or systemic racism that was created by white people for their own benefit is the fundamental organizing principle of society. That's what critical race theory is. If anybody ever asks if you can define critical race theory, yes, you can, that's what it is. And so for the rest of the time, we're going to make sure that we can believe that definition. So I said critical race theory is as critical race theory does. We'll talk about that more when we get to both lecture number two and lecture number four um, tomorrow. But like I just said a moment ago, critical race theory does as critical race theory believes. So we're gonna turn our attention for the bulk of this lecture to talking about what are the core beliefs of critical race theory and taking these apart. And for your listening convenience, I, like I told you, I selected only 13 of them. I tried to keep it short, but the thing is, you, you read these books, they always list them, and then they're like, oh yeah, you know, it's these five or these four, and the lists never match, and then you read through the books, and then they have all these other ones that are clearly super important. They have like whole chapters or whole big sections dedicated to them. So I just picked ones that I think are characteristic. The vast majority, I wouldn't say this is one of their slippery little games. Not all critical race theorists would subscribe to all of these. I think most critical race theorists would subscribe to most of these. And that's pretty important to understand. So let me just list them all for you so that I can just scare you with how many there are. <laughs> the ones I wanna talk about are a belief that racism is ordinary and permanent in our society. 
Sounds like my definition's pretty good. Already, that's just the first one. And almost every book agrees that's the first one. Racism is the ordinary state of affairs in society. That's how they phrase it. Second, virtually universally across all books, is acceptance of Derrick Bell's interest convergence thesis. Following from that, sometimes considered identical to that, is a belief in material determinism by racial category. These are all fancy technical terms. Following that is the uh, social construction and imposition of racial categories. So races are socially constructed. We hear that a lot in gender studies. Gender is a social construct. Race is a social construct, but it's also socially imposed and socially enforced. That's very important how, how critical race theory thinks. And that leads to something that they call, I just mentioned, material determinism. That leads to a belief in structural determinism by racial category. Because of structural determinism, they believe in a unique voice of color. That's what they call it, but what it actually is is what would technically be called positional standpoint epistemology. They often deny that they use standpoint epistemology because that was some junk radical feminist did in the 80s and early 90s and everybody ran away from it because it was discredited by, the, uh, by basically everybody at the time. Turns out they just repackaged it under a doctrine of positionality and structural determinism. Because there's a unique voice of color, they advance their ideas through narrative weaving, storytelling, and counter-storytelling, as opposed to, say, empiricism and rational thought. Because they're using storytelling, they rely on historical revisionism. That's your 1619 project. They offer a profound critique of liberalism and the very foundations of the liberal order. They believe that whiteness is a form of property, and since the liberal order is concerned with property rights, you can understand how considering whiteness property gives them a powerful lever. They believe in intersectionality as a sensibility for society, and that's a very important technical point that I've only recently fully comprehended, thanks to our friend Herbert Marcuse and Kimberly Crenshaw. And they believe in anti-racism as Praxis, and that praxis word is very important. It comes from the Greek, which means to act, and it is to put theory into practice. It is to take social activism with ideological theory as the guiding light. Finally, much to their dismay, they're not going to be able to disown the fact that they rely also on what's called critical whiteness studies. So critical whiteness studies has relevance. So those are the 13 things I want to unpack. I think we can already agree, though, just by mentioning those without even de defining them beyond their own like complicated academic words, that we can say that the definitions of critical race theory we're usually presented with are a bunch of BS. It is not teaching honest history. They rely on historical revisionism. It is, in fact, the teaching of ideologically biased history to forward the narratives that they want to weave and the stories they want to tell so that people will think in a particular way to accomplish anti-racism by praxis. It is not racial sensitivity training in any regard. It is not racial sensitivity training. It is racial hypersensitivity training because it works to divide people because it works to polarize environments. And when you polarize environments, you can scoop up the side of the polarization that's sympathetic to you, to your ideology, to your cult, if you wonder why they do that. And it's certainly not anti-racist. It's racist in every direction. If we remember my basic definition of belief system, predicated upon the belief that 
Systemic racism created by white people for their own benefit is the fundamental organizing principle of society. We can see immediately that critical race theory scapegoats whiteness. That's why critical whiteness studies is in here. It scapegoats whiteness. So it's foolish to deny that critical race theory is inherently anti-white. But at the same time, that's probably the least interesting thing about it because it's anti also every race that acts white or is white adjacent. So it's racist against Asians for being successful, which they call white adjacency. It's racist against Kanye West, who thinks for himself, which is apparently white supremacy culture, and therefore he can't act that way. It's racist against everybody in its own ways. And the most interesting thing about critical race theory is not its basic manipulation of a scapegoating of a racial category, which everybody eventually will get to be a part of that they don't like. It is in fact that it is race Marxism. It is Marxism that's using race as the tool to rip open society. If you miss that forest for those trees, the anti-white trees, then you don't know what you're doing and you're not gonna stop critical race theory. But if you also fail to acknowledge that it is scapegoating whiteness, that is the correct and best way to phrase that, anti-white is a bit useful to people that we, to reactionaries, frankly. Uh, if you, but you refuse to uh, acknowledge that it is anti-white in the sense that it scapegoats whiteness, then you also can't fight it. So this is a very delicate and difficult proposition. So I don't like to straw man, as I think everybody here would already know, because you're all friends and fans. So I'm gonna turn to reading from them. I offered my definitions of critical race theory. I struggle to find a true definition of critical race theory in the critical race theory books. If you read them, you'll find out they waffle a lot. And to tell anybody anything about what's in their books, you have to read like six pages to get like, you know, you know what, is, what do they think about white people? You have like six pages of waffle to try to sort out whether or not they think all white people are racist. And the answer is yes, they do. But it, it's always complicated, and this is intentional, gobbledygook language. So I'm just gonna read to you, and most of you will have heard most of this, from Critical Race Theory and Introduction by Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanczyk. Just to frame up, Richard Delgado was a critical race theorist from the beginning. He was at the Magical Meeting in 1989 when critical race theory gained its name, when critical race theory became a official thing regardless of what Derek Bell had been doing through the 70s and 80s before that, regardless of what Kimberly Crenshaw and other black feminists had been doing in the 80s before that. They had a meeting in 1989. They came up with, the, Kimberly Crenshaw came up with the name critical race theory, by the way, because it's a combination of critical theory and racial justice. Just straight up says it repeatedly. Um, and people, you know, say, well, it's not really a critical theory. It's like right in the name critical race theory. Uh, but at any rate, what Richard Delgado, Richard Delgado was there. He's an OG, as Kimberly Crenshaw recently praised Mari Matsuda, who is another OG, original gangsta of critical race theory. So in Critical Race Theory and Introduction, which he wrote at the high school level and early undergraduate level in 2001, it's now in its third edition, printed in 2017. They're virtually the same. I happen to have the first edition, so I tend to quote from the first edition. It's not like purity or whatever, the third edition has cleaned its act up. Um, they're pretty similar, but all my page numbers get screwed up if I switch editions, so I have to stick with um, the first edition. What they wrote was section one of the book, chapter one, section A, technically, what is critical race theory? That's the title of the section. 
And I think I'm going to justify my definition within the first sentence and then the explanation of the first sentence of this. The critical race theory CRT movement is a collection of activists and scholars interested in studying and transforming the relationship among race, racism, and power. Of course, transforming, maybe it means something normal, maybe it's a neo-Marxist dog whistle, then they mean liberation, transformation of society, which of course they do. Uh, we can come back to that. But it's actually the word, besides power and movement, movement concerned with power, that's neo-Marxism, um, it's actually the word race that's the, de the dead giveaway. Critical race theorists, by the way, all three words, you'll understand critical if you've listened to me enough, is, does not mean like critical thinking. They explicitly distinguish themselves from critical thinking because they're in the critical theory tradition. The critical thinking tradition is concerned, they say, with epistemic adequacy. The critical theory tradition is concerned with analysis of power and transforming society accordingly to reorganize how power is shared in society. So, Critical doesn't mean what it means. Theory isn't scientific here. It's some goofy social theory, but it actually isn't. It's capital T theory. It's Marxian theory is what they mean by theory. They don't mean the thing that is like, you know, the theory of evolution, theory of gravitation, or any of this. They mean Marxian social theory combined with praxis. And then race. What do they mean by race? Surely they can't be screwing around with the definition of race, right? Critical race theory is about race. Surely they mean what everybody means about race. No, they don't mean what everybody means about race. Let me read to you from the Brandeis University Social Justice Encyclopedia or Def Dictionary or whatever they call it of social justice, something like that. I don't know, the terminology. And they have, quoting from a book from something like 2014, the definition of race that they're going to use at Brandeis University social justice de related departments. And they write, race is a misleading, and deceptively appealing classification of human beings created by white people originally from Europe, which assigns human worth and social status using the white racial identity as the archetype for humanity, for the purpose of creating and maintaining privilege, power, and systems of oppression. Did you catch all that? The fundamental principle of society is systemic racism, which was created by, in their language, white people originally from Europe, which assigns human worth and social status using the white racial identity as the archetype of humanity, and it's a conspiracy theory as such, for the purpose of creating and maintaining privileged power and systems of oppression, which by the way, that all means neo-Marxism. My definition is correct. Their definition of race reveals it alone. So when we hear that critical race theory is a movement of, as a collection of activists and scholars, the activists and scholars are Marxian activists and scholars who are doing capital T Marxian theory using race as defined as a conspiracy theory that white people cooked up all the advantages for themselves, organized society according to those principles. The fundamental organizing principle of society is systemic racism created by white people in order to maintain their, what were the words? Privilege, power, and systems of oppression and it uses critical theory to do so, not critical thinking. Delgado goes on, the movement considers many of the same issues that conventional civil rights and ethnic studies discourses take up, but places them in a broader perspective that includes economics, history, context, group and self-interest, and even feelings and the unconscious. 
Of course, group and self-interest are the very interesting parts here. What they're saying is this is going to be multiple, multidisciplinary and it can be infested into any, uh, it can infect, I should say, any uh, discipline that it wants to or any affinity, any movement, any anything. But it's going to look at group interest and self-interest and it's even going to get inside your head and use feelings in the unconscious. That's neo-Marxism, that's Marxian theory repackaged with Freudian psychoanalysis, which is exactly what Herbert Marcuse's Eros and Civilization was about in 1955. There was the explicit attempt to do that. That's what that was always about. Unlike, everybody knows what's coming now, this is this, the famous sentence. Unlike traditional civil rights, so we've got a movement that is not like civil rights. Unlike the traditional approaches to civil rights, which may embraces incrementalism and step-by-step -step progress. So hold up, if it doesn't embrace incrementalism and step-by-step -step progress, but it's a movement, what does it want? Revolution. Revolution. Viva la revolution, right? That's what it wants. That's what it's about. They explicitly tell you in the first damn paragraph that it's not about using liberal systems, incrementalism, step-by-step -step progress, but no, it's got to fundamentally transform everything. It wants a revolution at the level of culture it turns out, a cultural revolution. That's what we've been experiencing since St. Floyd died. <laughs> Rest in power. <laughs> they say that because of course, because they're neo-Marxists. Unlike traditional civil rights, which embraces incrementalism and step-by-step -step progress, critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and the neutral principles of constitutional law. Did you catch all that? Anything happy or good in that? Very foundations of the liberal order. They've got to go. Liberalism is the thing in its crosshairs. Why? Because it's Marxian. Just be honest. It is. That's what they were after. That's what Marx was after. That's what the neo-Marxists were after. That's what the cultural Marxists were after. That's what the woke are after. And that's what critical race theorists are after. It throws out equality theory. Why? Because it believes that equality is a friggin' conspiracy theory. A conspir it's all a conspiracy theory. They believe that white people created the idea of equality. All men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That, to them, to critical race theorists, is a ruse. Robin DiAngelo, in her book with Aslam Sensoy, Is Everyone Really Equal? which questions at its very foundation, the idea of equality theory by its very title, explicitly says in my first edition, early in the book, I think on something like page five, that while all of these kinds of movements began in liberal humanism, they eventually rejected liberal humanism because they realized that ideas like peace and incremental progress, et cetera, whatever it lists, individualism, it realized that those fool the oppressed into thinking that they have more freedom and opportunity than social structures actually allow. That's close enough paraphrase to a quote. We can look it up. They think that equality fools people who are systemically oppressed by whatever axis, critical race theorists, it's race, obviously, into believing they have it equal when they don't. Social structures that are invisible are actually determining their fate. That's where we're going to get to this material and structural determinism stuff. They abandon the idea of legal reasoning. We call that rule of law. I'll skip one for a moment. They abandon the idea of neutral principles of constitutional law because the Constitution is the highest law of the land where our rule of law flows from. 
and they don't want it applied neutrally because neutrality like equality is the same conspiracy theory. They say that it's not possible, as a matter of fact, to use law in a neutral fashion, that no neutral standpoint exists. They call it sometimes, well, the feminists used to call it the God's eye view from nowhere. And that's a myth that, that white people and men and straight people and all of the privileged classes of society have created so that they can pretend that they are objective and everybody else's views need to be excluded. But it's the God's eye view, which doesn't exist, you can't get there, from nowhere because it doesn't have any standpoint that it occupies. That's what they believe. So we gotta get rid of neutrality, constitutional law, rule of law, and then in the middle, they sandwich in enlightenment rationalism. Why? Because critical thinking would rip apart their whole project in like 22 seconds. 16, 19 seconds. <laughs> Seriously, 16, 19 seconds is all it takes. 16.19 seconds, it'd be that fast. Enlightenment rationalism, epistemic adequacy. We can actually turn to Allison Bailey, who wrote this horrific paper on tracking privilege preserving epistemic pushback in feminist and, in case you wonder if it's connected to critical race theory, in feminist and critical race philosophy classes. And she writes explicitly in there, the critical thinking tradition is concerned with epistemic adequacy, soundness and validity of argument. The critical pedagogy she names, education, because that's actually, she's an education person. The critical pedagogy movement starts from a totally different set of presuppositions that are rooted in the Frankfurt School of Neo-Marxism. Where is the connection? Nobody can find it. It's nowhere, no one can see it. That's where they say that they're getting. And what did they say that it's about? Epistemic adequacy out the window. Systems of power. That's what we're going to analyze. So this is where critical race theory comes from. That's the first paragraph of critical race theory and introduction, which is written on the high school and undergraduate level. And isn't that a confession? The second paragraph isn't a lot better. By the way, that composes the entire what is critical race theory section. This is all they tell you. This is their definition of critical race theory. They haven't really defined it, right? It's a movement that does some stuff. And it hates, all of, hates the liberal order and thinking and things. Although CRT, they say, began as a movement in law, get ready for some gaslighting to fall apart, it has rapidly spread beyond that discipline. Remember, this was written in 2001. In fact, by 1995, Gloria Ladsden Billings and William Tate IV published a paper titled Toward a Critical Race Theory of Education. It's not in schools. It's been in school since 1995. What are you talking about? This was written in 2001. It rapidly spread beyond that discipline. Today, many in the field of education consider themselves critical race theorists. In 2001, many in the field of education consider themselves critical race theorists who use CRT's ideas to understand issues of school discipline and hierarchy, tracking, controversies over curriculum and history, and IQ and achievement testing. You see all the things they've had in the crosshairs for 20 years and you wonder why they're getting picked off. Political scientists ponder voting strategies coined by critical race theorists. Who knew Stacey Abrams was gonna make an appearance in this book? Who knew? What was that, HR1 or whatever they're trying to do, the, the, the squad and the AOC? They're right there. Political scientists ponder voting strategies coined by critical race theorists. Ethnic studies courses often include a unit on critical race theory, and American studies department teach material on critical white studies developed by CRT writers. 
Is critical whiteness studies part of critical race theory? You listen to the media, they say no. That's something totally different. Include a unit on critical race theory developed by, or critical white studies developed by critical race theory writers. Okay. They're lying. They just lie. Definition of critical race theorist. Effing liar. <laughs> Effing Marxist liar. But not a vul they're not vulgar. They're not vulgar. <laughs> they're very sophisticated and it'll work this time. Unlike some academic disciplines, critical race theory contains an activist dimension. Critical race theory is as critical race theory does. I know there's some scholars in here, like actual professors. Can you think of an academic discipline that contains an activist dimension? Like a real one, I don't mean pretend ones. Of course you can't. You don't have activist dimensions to academic theories. This is something different. It's Marxian two-dimensional capital T theory. And not only try, if the tie to Marx wasn't satisfactorily made, if it wasn't satisfactorily made, see if you can tell who this paraphrase is. I gave you a hint, by the way. His initials are KM. <laughs> it contains an activist dimension. It not only tries to understand our social situation, but to change it. Isn't that like one of his most famous quotes, Karl Marx's? The point isn't to understand society, it is to change it. It sets out not only to ascertain how society organizes itself along racial lines and hierarchies, but to transform it for the better. There's that transform word again. So that's their definition of critical race theory. Did you come away understanding critical race theory without a whole lot of editorializing and interpretation? Of course you didn't. It's almost impossible to understand what they're talking about at any point. Um, oh wow, I actually I forgot. I put the Tenso and D'Angelo quote on liberalism directly in here, so I can actually read that. I didn't just have to say it, so you can believe me that these are the actual words. Many of these movements, and they list anti-war, feminist, gay rights, black power, indigenous peoples, the Chicano movement, disability rights, and other movements for social justice. That's all the, the other movements for social justice is part of the quote. Those are the ones that they list in the preceding paragraph. Many of these movements initially advocated for a type of liberal, liberal humanism, individualism, freedom, and peace, but quickly turned to a rejection of liberal humanism. Let me put the parenthetical at the end of that. But quickly turned to a rejection of individualism, freedom, and peace, which means collectivism, totalitarianism, and war. The logic of individual autonomy that underlies liberal humanism, the idea that people are free to make independent rational decisions that determine their own fate was viewed as a mechanism for keeping the marginalized in their place by obscuring larger structural systems of inequality. In other words, it fooled people into believing they had more freedom and choice than societal structures actually allow. It's a conspiracy theory that implicates everybody who is said to benefit from privilege of any kind in society. For Marx, that was class privilege. For the neo-Marxists, it was high cultural status, elite status, bourgeois values. And for the woke, it is identity-based privilege. And for the critical race theorists more specifically, it's racial privilege or proximity to whiteness, which they scapegoat. 
So this is what critical race theory actually is. Let's break down some of these 13 core tenets and then we'll call it an evening. One, a belief that racism is ordinary and permanent in society. They say that explicitly. I'm, I did not copy every quote out of their book. I don't want to just read the book. I can actually just talk about some of these things. But that's actually the thing that they say. Racism, I think this is on page seven or something like this of Critical Race Theory Introduction. I kind of can remember where things are. I haven't memorized the whole first chapter yet, but we're getting there. Uh, on page 23, by the way, they say that critical race theorists are highly suspicious of another, another liberal mainstay, namely rights. They <laughs> highly suspicious of rights. They say that rights are alienating. That's why we have to, to, to be suspicious of them. But they actually say that racism is the ordinary state of affairs in society, not an aberration from them. It's so-called normal science. And I say that also, I add to this, that racism is permanent in society. And when I first started criticizing critical race theory, I got taken to task for this. They said, where does it ever say that? The subtitle of Derek Bell, the founder of critical race theory formally, the subtitle of his 1992 book, Faces at the Bottom of the Well, is The Permanence of Racism. I don't know where it says it. I have no idea. Obviously, I'm too ignorant to have possibly read the subtitle of one of the key books from the beginning of the movement, The Permanence of Racism. And I literally got challenged. No, it says permanence, not permanent. And so you can find about 30 interviews. I know. I know. So you can find about 30 interviews with Derek Bell where he says, no, no, I really think it's permanent. It's permanent. It is permanent to the existing system, however. And so permanence is actually a little linguistic trick. It's permanent to the existing system. But if we have our liberation revolution, then maybe we can get away from that. And so it's not maybe technically permanent. But within the existing system, the liberal order, racism is not only ordinary, it is permanent. There's not a lot that needs to be said on that. That is a psychopathic belief. That is an absolutely crazy belief that denies all of the progress since the civil rights movement and before it denies the progress that involved ending slavery in this country by living up to our principles that were in the Declaration of Independence and living up to the promises of the Constitution. It denies that progress. As a matter of fact, because partly of the second one, acceptance of the interest convergence thesis of Derrick Bell, it doesn't believe that racism gets better as we make progress. It believes that white people who have the keys to the systemic power and racial power in society always make progress such that it benefits themselves. That's what interest convergence actually says. Technically, it says that the people in positions of privilege only help people who are oppressed when it coincides with their own self-interests, and they do so in ways that reinscribe racism in new and more hidden ways. So racism, or sorry, critical race theory doesn't believe that racism gets better with progress. It believes that racism merely hides itself better and is harder to identify and harder to overcome. The Civil Rights Act, this is right, Civil Rights Act, Brown versus Board of Education, Plessy versus Ferguson, all of these landmark cases in civil rights history uh, that, that you look at, their writing is just obsessed with those particular things and they're just rewriting those and saying, well, here's how it was actually done by white people to white people's advantage and how it just created a raft of new problems for racial minorities, especially blacks. And while there are kernels of truth to the way that things actually played out for various reasons, many of which we're implementing things that critical race theorists fight to maintain. 
like many of the kind of entitlement-based programs in the Great Society that Johnson put forth, affirmative action and so forth. Um, for example, critical race theory, the key writings that form the movement, I think affirmative action is mentioned 256 times or something like that, to give you an idea of how interested in that concept they are. Uh, wonder what that program's about. Um, because of this interest convergence theorist, uh, thesis, however, they don't believe that progress happens. They believe that racism in kind of big picture stays the same, but in kind of a narrow picture it gets worse because it gets harder to spot and it requires more and more and more specially trained people, namely critical race theorists, to be able to spot it. That's what critical race theory is about. So you can see how this becomes a self-empowerment program uh, by illegitimate means as well. Incidentally, the interest convergence thesis have taken to its logical conclusion contains the idea that if you do as you're told and take up anti-racism, if you do as you are supposed to and take up anti-racism, you probably did so in your own self-interest. Of course, Robin DiAngelo and others like Shannon Sullivan call these, things, call these people good whites. People, she defines a good white liberal or a white progressive as people who think they get it, who are less racist or even not racist. And these people, Robin D'Angelo tells us, do the most daily damage to people of color because they refuse to continue to challenge their racism because they became a good white. Well, it turns out that was in your own self-interest. You only became an anti-racist because you wanted to elevate your own social status. So therefore, your choice to become an anti-racist at their demand was racist. And you just made racism harder. Now you do even more daily damage to people of color by their own idiotic conspiracy theory. Because of this interest convergence, Derek Bell, this is a little bit heavy, I guess, but we're gonna do a lot of heavy. Um, Derek Bell is actually a little bit different from the critical race theorists of today. He is what's known as a materialist. He's also his sidekick, um, Alan Freeman. They were both materialists. Materialists are concerned with material impacts, and this is a very charitable way to explain it. They are concerned with the impacts of law, for example, or the impacts of economics, or the impacts of institutional structures. So they're very interested in material things that are creating, say, inequality or something of that kind, if to be very generous to them, of course. There's also the fact that materialism is exactly what Marx was talking about with his dialectical materialism. And so the materialists are Marxists, and they're looking at the material conditions of society and looking to criticize those so he's a little bit different. His interest convergence thesis, he says, either is, depending on what you're reading, or leads to something called material determinism. So the material, this is straight Marxist theory, is that the material conditions, whether that's economics, that's pure Marx, vulgar Marx, but if we get into stuff like the culture industry and the, the law and the other main institutions of society, religion, family, education, media, and so on, produce material outcomes that determine the range of things that can happen to you. It's a conspiracy theory. So they believe that the white people have organized society in such a way so that the material conditions of the world determine the limits or delimit what most people of other races are able to accomplish, which is why you have to say white, I'm sorry, the Asian people are white adjacent when they are able to out-achieve white people because their theory otherwise can't explain it. Material determinism doesn't do very well with that. Oh, they must be white adjacent somehow. Critical race theorists, to kind of take a left turn, if you will, are social constructionists. This is postmodernism for the most part. It's not 
the other people talked about it in addition. I mean, Simone de Beauvoir was talking about kind of the social construction of sex in her book, 1949 book, The Second Sex. So, you know, the social constructionist thesis wasn't just within postmodernism. They did something very specific to it, but critical race theory definitely picked up um, the social construction thesis. Kimberly Crenshaw says that they didn't pick up the vulgar one, though, so it'll work this time, as you can tell. The social construction thesis of race says that race isn't real. Biological races don't exist. Race is a social and politically actionable fiction. We heard that in their definition of race. Remember, we created white people created it uh, specifically to maintain their power, privilege, and systems of oppression, and to hold themselves up as the archetype for humanity. That's what they believe. And this, these racial categories are all fictions that are social constructions that are used to apply this particular very paranoid and cynical uh, political program to society. So that's the idea of social construction, but Crenshaw is very articulate in mapping the margins. Her very famous 1991 paper that made intersectionality the thing that it has become today, and she explains that the reason that you can't use the vulgar social construction thesis favored by the postmodernists who would say, oh, well, if it's a social construction, then we can deconstruct it, we can take it apart. If race isn't real, and even she even says, the liberals and the postmodernists agree, race isn't real, let's just take it apart. As Morgan Freeman said in his uh, interview, was it with Mike Wallace or something like that? How are we supposed to end racism? Stop talking about it. I'm gonna call you Mike Wallace, you're gonna call me Morgan Freeman, and that's the end of it. We're gonna deconstruct race, we're not gonna let it be real, we're not gonna let it have social significance in our lives. Critical race theorists say, no, that's not possible. This conspiracy theory that the whites organize society around a principle of racism for their own benefit imposes racial categories on everybody. Imposes them on everybody but themselves. Part of white privilege is that you don't have a racial identity if you're white, because you're not forced to have one. But everybody else is forced to have one by the imposition of race. So racial minorities who are having this imposed upon them do not have the capacity to deconstruct race. Race cannot be deconstructed, so it becomes philosophically properly basic at the beginning point of knowledge. And so they derive from the social construction thesis of race that's no longer vulgar, and the imposition thesis of race that's no longer vulgar, structural determinism, that the structures of society, whether that's the linguistic structure, whether that's how one institution ties to another, Whatever structure it happens to be, depending on which theory you're digging into, the structures of society have deterministic effects on what the, the limits of your possible opportunities are, depending on racial category. So again, this, how, this is how the idea works, that you're gonna hold down, the white people created racial categories, especially the white one, so that they could hold everybody else down. Huge conspiracy theory. Also, fundamentally Marxist, that you, when you stratify society into opposing classes, upper and lower, and then say that they're intrinsically in conflict with one another, with the upper intrinsically oppressing the lower, and the lower are needing to awaken a consciousness so that they can overthrow that oppression against the upper, that's Marxism. That's Marx's conflict theory of society. That's how it thinks. They claim because of structural determinism that there's a unique voice of color, and this is a very sophisticated little trick they pull because they don't accept race essentialism. So you see people go up, a lot of times especially, we'll see commentators get on TV and they'll say, critical race theory is race essentialist. 
It says that black people have certain essential characteristics, white people have certain essential characteristics, and so on. And to a degree, it's actually true. And you can actually read in the critical race theory books, in particular critical race theory introduction, them struggling with this criticism because there's too much truth in it for them to get away with it. But they deny it. They say because we hold to the social construction thesis of race, we say no. As a matter of fact, we're not essentialist. Race is a fiction. We don't believe that. However, because race is imposed by power structures that you cannot escape, there's an essential experience to being black in a white world or being Latino in a white world or whatever. And that experience dictates how you understand the world and see the world. Your structurally determined experience and material de materially determined experience gives you a unique perspective and unique voice of color, a unique position and standpoint from which to understand the world. This, we finally get to invoke the H word, goes all the way back to Hegel's master-slave dialectic, which is exactly how he conceived of the differences between the races way back in his books like Philosophy of History and Philosophy of Rights. This master-slave dialectic outlined the exact same idea of the unique voice of color, which is that the masters live in the master's world, so they have a double dose of the master's perspective, but the slaves live in the master's world, so they have a slave perspective and a master's perspective imposed upon them, both of which are in fact imposed upon them. So they have a sort of double sight, a double consciousness, as W.E.B. Du Bois called it in 1903 in The Souls of Black Folk. So this is utterly core, that people who are oppressed by systems of power have extra insight that's based on their lived experience of their, and I make this, I don't make this up, their lived realities. In other words, their phenomenologically interpreted experience in the world, which is not that useful. By the way, here's an example. I gave this the other night in a talk um, that, where you can point out, you've probably heard me say it other places too, if you listen to all my podcasts, like I know you all do, um, <laughs> of your lived experience being a terrible way to figure out the realities of your lived reality. Imagine having a panic attack. And I think this one's very poignant because it's very relatable. You should memorize this and be ready to deploy, to deploy it when necessary, when lived experience comes up. People talk about their lived reality. Imagine having a panic attack and you rush to the hospital and you say, I'm having a heart attack and they rush you back and they put you on the bed and they get you back there and the doctor comes and immediately starts to hook you up to an EKG. And you say, I don't need that. I'm having a heart attack. Get the paddles. My lived experience is that I'm having a heart attack. It's what it feels like, that's my experience. And if the doctor listens to you, instead of deferring to objective evidence, he's gonna kill you. Lived experience is frequently misinterpreted. Your feelings are true. I'm not gonna say your feelings are even valid, I'm not that into therapy culture. Your feelings are something you are genuinely experiencing, but they are not a reliable guide to what's actually happening necessarily. And the panic attack is one extreme of this, but in the wake of St. Floyd, we saw, well, it may only be that the data show that nine or seven or 18 or whatever the actual number is, something under 20 unarmed black people are killed by police every year. But it feels like we're being killed on the street every day. Unreliable guide to reality, terrible guide to policy. Because they believe that they have a unique voice rooted in their standpoint, 
through their positionality, which means relationship to systems of power, where they are positioned relative to the various intersecting systems of power in society, they believe that the best way to challenge the prevailing view or to challenge the doctor when he is hooking the EKG up is through storytelling and narrative weaving, counter storytelling. They advocate in critical race theory and introduction for explicitly doing this in law. Come up and tell the exception to the rule story, for example. Tell the story, weave the narrative. Well, you know, we saw a couple of years ago at the Oberlin College, some, I think, black kid comes in and steals a bottle of wine or something like that and runs out. And then they were, you know, the argument was when, when the shopkeeper chased him down or called the police or whatever it was, is that he shouldn't have done that because the kid stole the wine because of all the systems of oppression. Like he had no agency in making the decision to, to rob a store. We see this exactly again though with, well, you know, you have to let them loot and riot and burn cities down because their oppression has finally hit a breaking point. Storytelling, narrative weaving. You can even weave in the narrative that COVID doesn't really transmit during racial justice protests. <laughs> Counter storytelling, like, you know, well, my brother's uncle his cousin's friend smoked three packs a day and lived to 104. Counter story. Not great statistics. Not great at getting to the bottom of things. So they actually forward storytelling and narrative weaving, which has the power of being very convincing. When you can attach something to a story and the emotions, you can actually get people to remember it and feel it and change how they believe and feel. It's not good for getting reality. They favor that over epistemic adequacy, empiricism. For example, when my friend Brett Weinstein said, was told that there's racism all over the, the Evergreen State College campus, one of the most progressive colleges in the country, so now maybe I do believe that it's really racist. Um, when he said, well, if there's racism here, I'm super progressive, I wanna get rid of it, point me to the evidence. They said, if you lived it, you would know it. Lived realities, voice of color, positional standpoint. If you lived it, you would already know it, so even asking the question is proof that you have white privilege and are therefore racist. Asking was racist. The story of we feel it so we know it is held above show me the evidence. And this is a core tenant. This is listed in like all the books, including in law, including in the sciences, storytelling over evidence. And it leads them to favor a technique. This is, I don't know if it still is, because I keep calling it out and they edit Wikipedia you know, pretty quickly, but their Wikipedia page has for years said that one of the core activities of critical race theory is historical revisionism. I remember pointing this out and getting attacked by critical race theorists on social media who were saying, well, what's wrong with historical revisionism if history was told wrong in the first place? You have to revise history if it was told wrong in the first place. So the idea that there would be, you know, at least idealistically somewhat objective standards and in digging into history, obviously you can't know everything. Nope, that's just a particular perspective, and we can guess which one, that's being scapegoated, and we need to tell a different story of history. We need to tell, instead of history, we need to forward, as the 1619 Project is called, a critical historiography of history, as Howard Zinn did when I mentioned American studies earlier. He's not talking about like civics. It's talking about the Howard Zinn Project to remake education into critical theories of the American project. And the 1619 Project fits right in 
to this glove. It is to retell history with the goal of pulling at people's feelings such that they understand a different story, a counter story to American history so that, because critical race theory is as critical race theory does, and this is all critical race theory exists to do, so that it will awaken a critical race consciousness in people, which is the race analog of a class consciousness in the people that sympathize with it. At its very foundation, we already read this, they have a critique of liberalism, a profound critique of liberalism. This is, every single one of them says this, that they critique liberalism. So, because they've, unfortunately, somebody, I don't know who the they is for sure in this case, it's probably people on the left, have, but maybe it's people on the right being sloppy. Since liberal and leftist have been conflated into one idea, in the United States we say, them libs, liberals, Liberals are always doing stupid stuff. No, leftists are. And it turns out critical race theory is not a liberal theory. It is an expressly, openly, stridently anti-liberal theory. It begs people to believe that it is an anti-liberal theory, that it is not associated with liberals. It is a leftist theory. And leftism, of course, since maybe at least 1917, but maybe 1850-some-odd has been Marxist theory. This critique of liberalism we already talked about, very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, enlightenment rationalism, legal reasoning, uh, and the neutral principle of constitutional law. I can't believe I actually said two of those in the wrong order. I've said it so many times. We read from Robin D'Angelo, what was it, individualism, uh, freedom, and peace, out the window. That's what it questions. As I said, page 23 of Critical Race Theory and Introduction, critical race theorists are highly suspicious of another liberal mainstay, namely rights. So the idea of rights endowed by your creator are going to be out. They're going to be changed to privileges granted by the state. Why do you think they use the word privilege so much? Under that, I said that they have a lever. Whiteness is a form of property. Liberalism is very concerned with property rights. Capitalism is very concerned with property rights. Whiteness is a form of property. This comes back to a theorist in 1993 named Cheryl I. Harris. I don't know what the I stands for. Cheryl I. Harris, who wrote this paper explaining how the concept of whiteness as understood within the emerging field of whiteness studies satisfies the legal definition through some tortured legal law review arguments of property. Whiteness is property. And they make the argument, for example, that white people were able to determine who else gets to be considered white, so it's in some sense fungible, it can be transferred. Most importantly though is that it has exclusivity to it. And she makes this rather tortured argument. Whiteness as property was given explicitly last summer while cities in this country were on fire as the justification for bailing people out and for tolerating the riots and not sending in police. White targets can be looted. Small businesses can be burned because that's whiteness and whiteness is property. That was given explicitly as the justification. And property is stolen because of slavery or because of genocide or because of whatever other thing they attach to the foundation of whiteness, meaning the foundation of the United States and other Western societies. They believe that whiteness is property. I actually have a quote, but I don't remember what it is, so I have to look at it again, about whiteness as property. 
Oh, it's from the Communist Manifesto. So it's not quite Cheryl Harris. It's from Marx. Because this is, this is what you have to understand. This is what they want to do with creating a whiteness as property argument. How does the lever work? How do you know this is a Marxist theory? Well, of course, they want to abolish whiteness. What did Robin D'Angelo tell us? The goal is to become less white. What did Coca-Cola tell us? What Robin D'Angelo said, the goal is be to become less white. We have in the audience the person who broke the Coca-Cola story about less white, as a matter of fact. Let's make sure to get the scoop on that while you're here. But why do they hate the idea? Why do they want to be less white? Is because whiteness is property. That's why we can burn down Target, because whiteness is property. But why do they hate property this way? Because it's liberal? Well, because in the words of Karl Marx, together with his friend Frederick Engels, the distinguishing feature of communism is not the abolition of property generally, but the abolition of bourgeois property. But modern bourgeois private property is the final and most complete expression of the system of producing and appropriating products. Appropriating, like cultural appropriation. That is based on class antagonisms, on the exploitation of the many by the few. In this sense, the theory of the communists may be summed up in the single sentence, abolition of private property. That sentence doesn't have a verb. <coughs> Just saying. <laughs> Marx, in the Communist Manifesto, communism can be summed up in a single sentence, abolition of private property, but not all property, bourgeois property. Whiteness as bourgeois property unlocks the whole story. When you understand that whiteness as property means whiteness is bourgeois property, and then you map the Communist Manifesto directly onto that, abolish private property, abolish whiteness. It's the same thing, and that's the rhetorical move made by Cheryl Harris in 1993. Told you, we're gonna give you the definitive, flatly candid word on critical race theory and what it is here. So this is what they're about. This is what that's about. So intersectionality is a sensibility. Intersectionality is sensibility. Intersectionality is a topic we could talk about for an entire lecture on its own. I don't want to do that, of course. Nobody wants to stay that long either. Well, maybe you do, I don't know. But intersectionality, uh, yeah, I hear you laugh. Of, cor of course you do. Thank you, thank you. Intersectionality is actually a core and intrinsic part of critical race theory also. You hear the gaslighting in the media that critical race theory is different from intersectionality. No, they are integrally combined because under intersectional theory, all axes of oppression are united or linked together at least. You cannot understand any one without understanding all of them. You cannot support the ending of one system of oppression without supporting the ending and abolishment of all systems of oppression. That's intersectionality in a nutshell. What intersectionality asks people to do is to think in terms of power dynamics and people's position relative to that in terms of their identity for identity politics purposes at all times. It is a new definition of what is and is not sensible. Race is one dimension of this new sensibility. So if somebody says something, you can't understand whether it was a sensible or reasonable or fair or good or bad thing to have been said unreasonable, insensible, without knowing their racial position first. So you constantly have to think in terms of identity, or in Robert D'Angelo's words, positionality must be intentionally engaged at all times. It is a new sensibility for understanding the world. 
a new sensibility for understanding the world, where you always have to look at identity-relevant power dynamics to understand anything, to determine whether it's sensible or not. It's a complete theoretical lens or prism, if you will, stuck flat into the idea of the Overton window. The Overton window is the range of acceptable opinions, and now we're going to distort that range. We're not going to move the Overton window necessarily. We're going to distort what you see through it by sticking on a theoretical lens of positionality must be intentionally engaged. And intersectionality is utterly, not only integral to critical race theory, it came from the same place. Critical race theory was made up, or named, I should say, by Kimberly Crenshaw. Intersectionality was made up and named by Kimberly Crenshaw. Kimberly Crenshaw invented intersectionality because they weren't doing critical race theory inside of feminism. And they weren't doing feminism inside of black liberationism. Intersectionality is, in a sense, the application of the critical theories of identity to each other and then to everything. And critical race theory is an integral component of that. And most of the books list, when they say the core tenets of critical race theory, usually it's number five that they stick on intersectionality. You must think intersectionally to be a critical race theorist. So it's really there, it's the real deal. Um, I have a quote about whiteness left, so it's not about intersectionality. And I want to linger though on this phrasing that I've chosen here. Intersectionality as sensibility, as the new sensibility. For those of you who are avid followers of the podcast, you know the most recent episode of the New Discourses podcast covers the second chapter or section of Herbert Marcuse's 1969 essay on liberation, and the title of that section is The New Sensibility. And he claims that if we're going to get to liberation, we need a new sensibility. Intersectionality is what filled the void. Kimberly Crenshaw calls critical race theory, I'm sorry, calls intersectionality a sensibility in mapping the margins in 1991. Kimberly Crenshaw also cites Angela Davis in the same paper, who was Herbert Marcuse's doctoral student, who went on to inspire much of black feminism. Kimberly Crenshaw, though I can't be certain, probably knew why she used that word. It is a sensibility. It is a new way to consider everything, and it's rooted in that neo-Marxist program, remember my other definition, that Herbert Marcuse laid out where we're gonna manipulate the feminists we're going to manipulate the sexual minorities and the outsiders and the ghetto populations to do the neo-Marxist leftist intelligentsia project. I think my definition's pretty good, right? And last, before we get to critical whiteness studies of technically their um, core principles, is anti-racism as praxis. I've never seen this one listed. It's just in everything. So anti-racism is what they call being a critical race theorist. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything else. Anti-racism is not being against racism, it means being a critical race theorist. Because you're not genuinely being anti-racist until you have awakened a racial class consciousness and everything proceeds from there. That's the only way to be an anti-racist. If you're white and you become an anti-racist, we already talked about how that positions you as a good white, so you actually made things worse, but you had to do it anyway, so you made things better, but you made things worse, but you made things better, but you made things worse in the end. But if you're a white person, you're therefore simultaneously racist and anti-racist at the same time. Wow, a contradiction. 
within you that you're going to have to work out. Accelerate the contradictions, comrades. That's Vladimir Lenin. Contradictions that you're going to have to work out dialectically. The dialectic from Hegel is the operating system of leftism since the mid-19th century. Anti-racism is praxis. A critical theory, by definition, has to be put into social application and activism. Remember, we saw Delgado saying it has an activist dimension, unlike many <laughs> scholarly fields, because none of no scholarly field has an activist dimension. That's called praxis. Theory and praxis must be wed. That's what they say. And so you cannot merely teach about critical race theory unless you do so like I am right now from an outsider perspective. If you are a critical race theorist, you must do critical race theory in order to teach critical race theory. And what you must be doing is anti-racism as they define it as praxis. Kendi gives a tortured definition of anti-racist. It basically means anything that gives the results that I want. In other words, actually, it moves toward equity as they define it. It diminishes the on average group outcomes and makes up for historical group differences. Robin D'Angelo tells us, however, that it is an ongoing process. Sorry, I skipped the important part. A lifelong commitment to an ongoing process of self-reflection, self-critique, and social activism. That's what she says anti-racism is. That's anti-racism as praxis. She also adds in a worksheet that's been on her website forever and in like tons of her public talks, no one is ever done. Lifelong commitment, no one is ever done. It's not just being against racism, gang. It is a lifelong commitment that you will never finish to self-reflection, self-critique, and social activism. But if we go back, say, to Paolo Ferreri, who wrote The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, I think it's published around 1970, give or take a couple of years, Brazilian Marxist educator. My Brazilian friends say he ruined Brazilian education. Paulo Freire describes praxis as activism that is self-reflective and self-critical. Robin D'Angelo is just regurgitating that. Praxis by definition. And Freire didn't hide the fact that he was openly a Marxist. In fact, in Pedagogy of the Oppressed, when he's, he's praising Mao on this page, he tries to praise Castro on this other page, but he says Castro didn't do it right, so we have to look to Che Guevara. That's the people he holds up. And then when he says we need to understand, I think this is in chapter three or four, I forget where it is, near the end, he says when we need to understand a proper theory of education, we turn to this quote from Lenin. Doesn't even try to hide the fact that he's a Marxist. Says the same thing as Robin D'Angelo about what praxis is about, but Robin D'Angelo doesn't use the P word. She just says that it's anti-racism and describes it in terms of praxis. So this is what we're talking about. And lastly, we have critical white studies, which we've already seen from Delgado and Stefanczyk came out of critical race theory. They try to disavow it because the critical whiteness studies authors appear to A, be vis visibly racist and B, probably visibly mentally ill. <laughs> if you read White Fragility, there are a few ways that you can interpret that. One is through a form of religious OCD called scrupulosity for a woman named Robin D'Angelo who discovered a religion of anti-racism where racism is the greatest possible sin and she can't get the feeling 
of her own racism off. That's why she constantly describes, and in her new book, Nice Racism, one episode after another about how she and her family and everybody around her are always, she has all these racist thoughts and she shows up at a picnic and she's like, oh God, I have to join the all black group and I got paralyzed with fear. And then I was totally relieved when I got to go to the one that had white people at it. Like she really writes this in her book and she doesn't understand that this is confession by projection in the most blatant sense. But there is actually, there is actually a form of religious OCD that is a mental illness, it's called scrupulosity and it manifests exactly this way. It usually manifests in religious contexts where people feel like they have not properly been saved. They've been saved from their sin, say of racism, or whatever, their sin, and they don't feel saved, so they continue to go through processes. The Puritans took this to a high art form, I mean the proper ones back in the 16th century, and they believed, and so you can also read Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility or Nice Racism, as Puritan humiliations. Puritan humiliations. When you, it's a belief system, y'all. When you believe that you have been saved, you've gone through the steps of accepting salvation on your end in religion, you can then enter into a humiliation in the Puritan sense where you feel like you haven't yet achieved justification and you will not be glorified unless you achieve justification. And so the way that you achieve justification is by repeatedly confessing your sin in these long and tortured explanations. Robin D'Angelo's virtual entire body of work can be understood as a series of Puritan humiliations in a anti-racist belief system that our federal government refuses to recognize for being a system of faith and treating accordingly. So we're gonna read from Barbara Applebaum She's one of my, Robin D'Angelo is everybody's favorite critical whiteness person. It's just so easy to read and transparent. It really is. I mean, there's a whole raft of these people. They're just insane. Barbara Applebaum is one of my favorites. She has this wonderful book that I've read a couple of times. I really recommend it. It's just, it's a heavy read. It's a, philosoph it's a philosophical read, but it's just a window into a mind. And it's called Being White, Being Good. White complicity, white moral responsibility, and social justice pedagogy. That's the title of the book. White complicity, white moral responsibility. I wonder what it's about. <laughs> and so she describes whiteness for us. Barbara Applebaum on whiteness. Whiteness benefits all those ascribed whiteness. And it is white people's investment in whiteness that can obscure how white people even with the best intentions, that's in italics, are implicated in sustaining a racially unjust system. It is the complicity of, in italics again, it is the complicity of well-intentioned white people that is the central focus of this book. The concept of white complicity turns up in various manifestations and the critical whiteness scholarship, which we remember, that came out of the critical race theory scholars, even though they're denying that now. There are at least two types of the white complicity claim that should be dis uh, discerned. First, white complicity is often addressed as the product of unconscious negative attitudes and beliefs about non-white people that infect all white people and has an effect on their practices. This is one way to explicate how well-meaning white people play a role in the perpetuation of systemic racism. So on the question of, are all white people racist? Yes, 
Critical whiteness studies is a field of study, a subfield of critical race theory devoted to making the argument at book length that all white people are racist by virtue of being white and therefore being granted access to whiteness. And this is why you have these tortured concepts like, like white complicity and it's even more horrific offshoot, brown complicity. Brown complicity, which is where brown people are also complicit in white supremacy by virtue of not being black. Because they say explicitly that they side with whiteness by expressing their anti-blackness, by not taking up full-throated critical race theory. That's called brown complicity. This is a, a truly disgusting ideology. What else does Applebaum say? In case we were wondering, are all white people racist in critical race theory? She says it, I think, something like 14 times in the book that all white people are racist, but I only chose three examples. White privilege protects and supports white moral standing and this protective shield depends on there being an abject other, by the way, that's Hegel, that constitutes white as good. Whites, thus, benefit from white privilege in a very deep way. As Zeus Leonardo remarks, all whites are responsible for white dominance since their very being depends upon it. Whiteness can only be understood in terms of white dominance, according to critical race theory. Their very being depends on it. They hold up white racial identity as the archetype of human beings. This is how critical race theory thinks. So you can kind of get this weird flavor that it's simultaneously not just anti-white, but very white supremacist. It's like self-loathing white supremacy codified into a religion which when you read your Puritan humiliation D'Angelo and you understand what you're looking at. To summarize at one point, and again, like I said, she says it like 14 times in the book, Applebaum writes, just making it very simple, the relevant point for now is that all white people are racist or complicit by virtue of benefiting from privileges that are not something they can voluntarily renounce. So you can become an anti-racist and a lifelong commitment to an ongoing process of self-reflection, self-critique, and social activism, but you cannot actually renounce your whiteness. You can't actually get away from it. She says other places in a more philosophical terms that with whiteness, there's no difference between being and doing. Being and doing are the same thing. Being white and doing whiteness amount to the same thing. Therefore, all whites are racist. So critical whiteness studies is a field of study, sub-branch of critical race theory that exists to forward the idea of white racial scapegoating, to scapegoat whiteness. Of course, we can go back to Marxist conflict theory and understand why that is. They believe that there is a racial division in society, a stratification in sociological terms. Whites have given themselves, by the arrangement of the system, access. Everybody else is oppressed. They have bourgeois property. Nobody else has bourgeois property. And if we can awaken a racial consciousness, now with critical white studies, not just in racial minorities, I, I don't even like to say it, in other race, I don't even know what to say. Races that are not white, I suppose. I don't like to use their terminology. It's very difficult to get around it though. Not only do we have to awaken a racial consciousness in them, but we also have to awaken a white racial identity that is intrinsically negative. 
Now let's go back a second so that we can conclude for certain that not only, I think we've put legs under my definition, fundamental organizing principle of society, systemic racism created by whites for their own benefit, which is a conspiracy theory rooted in neo-Marxism and ultimately race Marxism. I think my definition is sufficiently covered. But if we go back a step, and if I can remember where we're, what step we're going to go back to, because they're already, oh, we're gonna, we're going back, they're gonna go back to the imposition thesis, the social construction imposition thesis. We're gonna conclude that it's also a racist theory altogether. Critical race theory is racism. And it's not racism by the normal definition. It's not racism by your definition. It's not racism by the definition that I prefer, which is the, uh, is putting social significance into racial categories for the purposes of scapegoating, stereotyping, or discriminating, which is a good all-purpose definition. It is racist by their own definition of racism, which is that privilege plus power or prejudice plus power thing that they say, prejudice plus power. Why? Kimberly Crenshaw tells us that the reason that we can't use a vulgar or liberal social construction thesis of race or the postmodern one, is because race is imposed by people with the power to impose it. They understand that this is wrong, particularly when the racial identity is meant to exclude people from full participation in society or otherwise to scapegoat, stereotype, or discriminate. In other words, if it's a negative racial identity. But critical whiteness studies openly and repeatedly says it exists to awaken a racial identity, to impose, in fact, a racial identity because people may not want to participate in this, and if they don't, then they're racist. Impose a racial identity onto white people that is intrinsically negative. Robin D'Angelo says there is no such thing as a positive white identity. We should strive to be less white. So they know they are imposing a racial identity onto white people that they don't want, that has an intrinsically negative valence. They therefore, by their own definition, are engaging in what I term strategic racism. Reverse racism is the wrong term. It is strategic racism. And it is strategic racism by virtue of the fact that they know that scapegoating whiteness is a tool that they can use for their neo-Marxist or deeply, more deeply Marxist ambitions to gore society with a spear that in the morning we're going to learn has 100 years behind it. So I believe I've put legs under my definition anyway. I believe I've convinced everybody paying attention that in fact, Critical race theory is a belief system that is predicated upon the belief that racism is the fundamental organizing principle of society. It's a neo-Marxist conspiracy theory of this kind that was created by white people for the benefit of white people. That's the definition of critical race theory. You can say it in a sentence, you can say it in an elevator, you can say it to your mother, and they're basically all going to understand it. It's not complicated. If, you, if that's too complicated, race Marxism turns out to be right, absolutely right. Later, we'll talk about the dictatorship of the anti-racists. That's lecture number three. We will actually cover that. So thank you all for coming tonight. That's what is critical race theory. I hope you now understand it, and then you can start to cure it. <laughs>